Hello everyone, I'm Jacob Kaufman. And I'm Richard Bimmer. And welcome to episode 19 of Rolling Release, our weekly podcast about the perpetual improvement of Linux. How are you doing this week, Richard? Pretty good. I right. just started break, so cool. I'm pretty happy about that. Thanksgiving break? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's been a little while since we've streamed. I said it was a weekly podcast, but uh, we've taken like a month off to do some other productions. Uh, we're happy to be back now, though. And Richard here joining us with video this week and next week. That's a, a treat. Um, so yeah, we've got some news that we are going to be covering. Um, yeah, haven't had a whole lot of time this week. We've still had a lot going on with the, um, the outcome from Extra Life and videos to edit from that, as well as the new weekly composer live streams I've been concerning myself with. So Richard and I have not had a whole lot of time to highlight these stories, uh, but we are going to go ahead and discuss them. So... Switching on over to the desktop here, the first thing we'll talk about is KDE Frameworks 5.40.0 has been released. Um, so Richard, you um, I know you said you didn't have a lot of time to look at articles. This was like the first one I sent you. Did you read through this at all or no? Um, no, I was reading through the one regarding OpenOffice. All right. Probably that one was more interesting than this one because KDE Frameworks 5.40, not a whole lot happening. Um, it's just a very minor maintenance release. I thought I'd throw it in because it was pretty recent. Um, so yeah, they've got, they, they do have a lot of different changes that have been made. You can go through the entire change log. They've fixed some memory leaks in some of their applications. They've switched some of their links from HTTP to HTTPS, just general, uh, cleanup sort of things. They've made some additional work on K Wayland, which is always ongoing in our quest to switch to Wayland. Uh, the network manager applet has gotten some improvements as well. Uh, some security improvements. So yeah. Um, that and a little bit more in the new KDE Frameworks 5.40.0. If you're on a rolling release distribution, then you'll be receiving that shortly. If not, that will be um, included with your next distro update. Uh, not a whole lot else going on there. Now, this next story is one that I actually like. got really excited slash freaked out about when I read it. Um, Minix. Richard, did you hear about this when this story broke about Minix? No. All right. Um, so some researchers at Google discovered that Intel has been hiding an entire Minix operating system in the management engine of every single one of their processors um, since they've started including that management engine in their processors a few years back. So oh, wow. when I say that, what's your first reaction to that, Richard? Um, that probably doesn't seem that secure. Yeah, that's that's the main concern with this. Um, so the name of the researcher who published this uh, was Matthew Garrett. He's a well-known Linux and security developer who works for Google. Um, and he explained recently that, like I said, Intel chipsets for some years have included a management engine, uh, which we already knew about because Intel told us about that. However, what we didn't know is that systems using Intel chips are running Minix in that management engine. So here's how this is working. Um, basically, no matter what operating system you're running on your computer, be it Linux or Windows or Mac OS, it doesn't actually have final control over the platform. There are several other lower levels in your processor that um, have more control than your operating system's kernel, such as the BIOS slash UEFI, and that's something everyone's familiar with. Um, now it's interesting, where is the... Here we go. So x86-based computers, which would be desktop computers, run their software at different privilege levels called rings. Um, Richard, are you familiar with that paradigm? Yeah, we've actually been like talking about that in my um, systems class recently. Okay. Um, so you might know that programs, user applications run at ring three, and they have the least access to the hardware. 
Uh, rings 2 and 1 usually aren't used. Your operating system, such as the Linux kernel, runs on ring 0. Um, so hypervisors run at ring negative 1. UEFI slash BIOS runs at ring negative 2. Until now, we thought that negative 2 was the lowest it went. Um, that was the lowest that we were aware that existed. However, Minix is here running on ring negative 3 with more access to your system than your BIOS even has. Wow. Which is pretty crazy um, for something to have more access than the basic input-output yeah. system of your computer. Um, so yeah, now we're not exactly sure what all Minix is doing because it is a proprietary copy of Linux. We'll talk about that in a little bit, how that um, works because Minix itself is open source. But we do know that running in Minix, there is a functioning TCP IP networking stack, so it is connected to the network. Um, there is at least one file system running in this Minix instance. There are drivers for your disk and USB, your mouse, as well as networking. And there's also a web server running on this Minix instance on every single Whoa. Intel processor. Now we, we can't we can't access the web server because it's locked down, um, but there is a web server running on every single Intel processor that Intel has not been telling us that was there. So that is disconcerting. Yeah, to say the least. <laughs> like really um, concerning. <laughs> ZDNet points out that Minix also has quote access to your passwords. Um, I assume that's just because it can get access to literally everything. I don't know why your password yeah. specifically, unless it's talking about the trusted platform module, because that kind of goes hand in hand with uh, the um, the management engine. But we do know that Minix can even do things such as reimaging your computer's firmware, even if your computer's powered off. As long as it's plugged in, um, these low the the negative three ring does not really respond wow. to the the ACPI power state. Like your computer can be turned off and it can still be working. Um, so Minix can potentially change your computer's fundamental settings, even and if it's, it's turned off. And it's connected to the off. internet, which is somewhat worrisome. And it's connected to the internet. So it, let's say that an exploit were to happen here. Um, even if you were to unplug your computer, literally unplug your computer in a an attempt to stop the exploit. The attack will still be there waiting for you when you plug it back in. It won't even wait for you to hit the power button. Um, which means that an exploit in, in this would be pretty bad. So that is another reason people are getting kind of freaked out about this. As ZDNet points out, this software is currently only secured by security by obscurity. It's not actually um, really secured in any of the ways that Linux is because even though Minix is open source, this copy of it that Intel is shipping is proprietary. Once again, we'll talk about that in a moment here. Um, there was a Network World article by Brian Lunduke also talking a bit about this a little bit more generally, uh, just kind of covers some of the same stuff. It is worth noting that Minix was originally written as an educational tool to teach how an operating system works, basically. Um, <laughs> And it actually was one. It's running on everyone's computer. It is running on everyone's computer. Um, Linus, Linus Torvalds reportedly was inspired by Minix, and uh, it was one of the the things that inspired him to make Linux. So that's a little bit of trivia for you. Um, now Google is actively working to remove Intel's management engine from their internal servers. And first of all, if Google doesn't trust your CPUs, you've got some problems going on because a lot of people don't trust Google. And if Google doesn't trust you, yeah. that's like triple not trusting. Um, so yeah, that that's a bad sign. Now, it is a good sign. I actually think something good could come from this 
because if Google, if anyone else, let's say that tomorrow the Free Software Foundation said they wanted to strip out the management engine from Intel processors. That's not really a hypothetical because they said they wanted to do that years ago and they've been working on it and they haven't been able to. Now that Google actually wants to do it though, it might actually happen. Like if they can actually figure yeah. out how to disable the management engine entirely, um, that could be huge for for freedom respecting computing. So yeah, uh, now there is one more article here about this from the, it's this is an open letter to Intel written by Andrew uh, Tannenbaum, the creator of Minix. And he says, dear Intel basically, thanks for putting a version of Minix inside the ME11 management engine chip used on almost all recent desktop and laptop computers in the world. I guess that makes Minix the most widely used computer operating system in the world, even more than Windows, Linux, or Mac OS. Um, he goes on to talk about how he didn't even know about this until he read about all the news stories. And one day, imagine you wake up and just all of the tech blogs are writing about your operating system. Uh, must have been pretty interesting for him. Now, he had some suspicions that Intel was doing something with Minix because several years ago, Intel uh, had one of their engineering teams contact him about some secret internal project they were doing. They asked a large number of technical questions about Minix, eventually even requested that the creator of Minix make some changes to it um, to make the memory footprint smaller, which if you're going to be running something on a processor like at such a low level, you know, you've got to have a super yeah. low footprint or else people are going to know that something's up. Um, so yeah, very interesting. And then he goes on to talk about the license. Now, how was this able to happen Minix was published under the uh, the BSD license, which there's two general categories of freedom respecting licenses. There's the GPL side of things, and then there's the BSD side of things, which I believe the MIT license also falls under the BSD side. Um, GPL, if you publish your code under GPL, then other people who use it also have to publish their programs under the GPL. Um, it's similar to Creative Commons share alike. If somebody uses this, then they have to use the same license uh, for their software. Whereas BSD is more like public domain, where anyone can use this software and you don't have to publish your software under BSD. You don't even have to publish the source code to your software. If I publish my code under BSD, you can use the code for whatever you want and you don't even have to tell me about it. Um, you don't have to provide source code. It's just whatever you want. Andrew here, the creator of Minix, says some interesting things about this development. Uh, he says, that, once again, this was a complete surprise. He says, I don't mind, of course, that this is going on. He says, the only thing that would have been nice is after the project had been finished and the chip deployed, that somebody from Intel would have told me, just as a courtesy, um, how popular my operating system is now. But the, the last paragraph here, which I didn't get around to highlighting, this is, this is really something interesting. He says, if nothing else, this bit of news reaffirms my view that the Berkeley license provides the maximum amount of freedom to potential users. Now, Richard, do you agree with that statement um, based on the fact, based on this instance of Minix having a proprietary alternative installed on all Intel processors in, the, in recent years, does that mean that the Berkeley license gives users the maximum freedom? I wouldn't see end users, certainly. I guess it gave Intel a huge amount of freedom because they didn't have to say anything or notify anything. Right. But it and that's... doesn't... Like, end users, like, I feel like this is a serious 
like security risk that no one, none of us were made aware of. And it seems like it's actually taking a lot of, it could be taking some processing power away from you for really just to run something that we're not even sure what it's being used for, the reason for it. Yeah. Um, and I doubt it's taking a whole lot of processing power away once again, just because it's so low level and they yeah. did optimize the heck out of it. But yeah, this really highlights the difference between the, uh, the Berkeley philosophy on things and, and the Free Software Foundation's philosophy on who is the end user. Um, the BSD license provides the maximum amount of freedom to the immediate next user of the code, but the GPL is specifically for the end user. That is what the GPL is written for. Um, so I think the fact that that this happened, the, the you know, if Minix, if, if the source code running on this management engine was open source, I don't think that many people would have a problem with this because the management engine, as some have pointed out, does have some legitimate usage for managing large swaths of servers and whatnot. There is some usage there. If the software was open source, then we, we could ensure that we're not being, you know, invaded upon, um, we can ensure that this isn't infringing yeah, no, on our privacy, that kind of thing. Right. And there's no backdoors. Yeah. Right. And that it's secure. Um, but it is proprietary. And the fact that the creator of Minix views this as a good thing, like this is the intended result, uh, that a corporation was able to put a proprietary backdoor in every single one of their computers that most of the world uses. Um, yeah, I, I mean, this is one of those things where if this guy has that opinion, then nothing that we say about it's gonna change that opinion. Um, yeah. That's just how he thinks the world should work apparently. And personally, I'd rather Intel not have a proprietary always running backdoor into my system. Um, but yeah, there, there were some Reddit threads I read about this. Um, yeah, people pointing out under the BSD philosophy, Intel is the user, where under the GPL philosophy, uh, the end user is the user. So yeah, I. Um, I pulled up the Reddit thread because there were um, a lot of good points made in it, but I didn't get a chance to really go through and highlight. So I'll just go ahead and link it um, and feel free to read through all of that. But yeah, that is that's one of the big differences between the open source software movement and the free software movement too, because a lot of people kind of equate those two things together. Um, you know, once you once you explain what free software is to begin with, where it's not about price, it's about freedom, uh, but then open source accomplishes that. You know, a lot of people say, all right, so there's a philosophical difference between free software and open source, but, um, you know, let's be pragmatic about it. What's, what's the practical difference? The practical difference is that the world's largest CPU manufacturer cannot put a proprietary backdoor into your computer with the free software, yeah. but they, <clears> can, but they can, can with open, open source. source software. That's, that's a very practical difference. Um, so yeah, that will be my, my uh, rebuttal to that argument whenever I hear it um, in the future. Do you have anything else to say about that? Um, not a whole lot, but other than I thought that was like a really big article, I'm kind of sad that I missed that one happened during it. Yeah. Um, Yanats asks, isn't Richard Stallman okay with proprietary firmware? That's a good question. Uh, the Free Software Foundation does classify some embedded utilities as utilities and not computers um so they say it's okay for the software to be proprietary i think in this case since it's not necessary to the functioning of the device um i mean i highly doubt richard stone would be okay with this so my answer to that question would be no 
Our next story is a little bit less um, concerning, a little bit more monotonous. Um, so Apache Open Office basically has acknowledged that they're not, quote, cool. They said, we're okay with not being super cool. Uh, by the way, our Mac version is outdated and has a bug, so watch out for that, is, is what this um, interview said. So let's see here. Um, open Office for a little while now. We all remember when Oracle bought Sun and started closing down Open Office development. Developers created the, the Document Foundation, forked Open Office into LibreOffice. And then later, Oracle saw that Open Office was basically dead and gave it to Apache as a gift. Um, they're still limping along. And, you know, the real reason I put this story in, because it wouldn't really be that newsworthy, just the Open Office people talking, but Open Office, the, the most recent version, got 1.6 million downloads. Um, including 77,000 people downloaded the new macOS version with a, a corruption bug in OpenOffice Calc, where literally if you make a diagram, then the file becomes corrupted when saved. 77,000 wow. people have that bug. But um, 1.6 million is a lot more people than I thought were still using OpenOffice. Like, what do you... Yeah. How many people do you think are using LibreOffice compared to that? I don't know. I mean, I I would have, like, put LibreOffice in those numbers. I feel like it's probably the same amount of people roughly using, like, Ubuntu and Linux that would be using LibreOffice since yeah. they're shipping with it. I mean... But I don't know if they're actively using it or just using Google Drive or something, too. Right. Um, and LibreOffice is available for Windows and Mac as well. So mm -hmm. um, people who keep up with with it might be downloading LibreOffice on um, on Windows still. Now, I do still hear people recommending OpenOffice just out of habit. Um, all of the teachers at my, my technical college I'm going to right now say, if you can't afford Microsoft Office, uh, get OpenOffice. And I always, in my head, I'm like autocorrect it to LibreOffice. Um, but it's like these people that... They don't know what Libre even means. They know open is like, oh, that means you don't pay for it, right? Is like the, the person mm. on the street view of it. Um, whereas Libre is literally a foreign word. So I guess people just understand open office more. Open office was around a lot sooner. Um, so people who don't keep up with this sort of thing and ironically would probably be hurt the most by these bugs. Um, yeah, since they wouldn't even be aware of them. Yeah, they're the ones still downloading open office. I just, uh, yeah, 1.6 million on the latest release, which was 4.1.4, .4 is pretty crazy. Now, let's see here. Member of the Open Office Project Management Committee, um, Jim Jagelski. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that name right, but Jim says, there is a renewed interest and involvement in the project. Um, <laughs> to be honest, part of the issue has been that many involved with the project have had to spend a lot of time and resources fighting the ongoing... Um, basically the ongoing stigma related to Apache OpenOffice, which meant limited time in doing development. And he says, um, yeah, they're working on test builds for 4.2.0 right now for all operating systems. Yeah, he says Apache OpenOffice is not and isn't designed to be the, quote, super coolest open source office suite with all the latest bells and whistles. Um, he says other office suites, which is clearly implying LibreOffice, are focusing on the power user which is a valuable market for sure, but the real power and range for an open source office suite alternative is the vast majority, which is the rest of us. Um, 
Well, and, you know, not having bugs that are, like, huge right, security that, vulnerabilities or, you know, breaking... Or corrupt your file when you make stuff, a diagram yeah. in a number-crunching program, yeah. If you're trying to appeal to the average user, you probably shouldn't have those issues either. Yeah. Um, and do you think the reason why people haven't switched from OpenOffice to LibreOffice is really because it's too complicated? No. I mean, you know... Libre like, Office. I barely ever use LibreOffice, but when I do, like, it's not hard for me to figure it out. When like, the fork <laughs> first happened, it was literally the same thing as OpenOffice. Yeah. Like, every single button was in the exact same place. You could you could walk through in both programs. Everything was in the same spot. Now, the only changes LibreOffice has been making has actually been making it simpler. They've been trying to make a ribbon UI, um, which they're trying to do without infringing on the ribbon UI patents, which is kind of difficult, but... <laughs> Yeah, they're not making it more complicated, and the ribbon is certainly not a power user feature. Um, I didn't realize Microsoft had patented the ribbon UI. Yeah, I read about that during this when I was looking up LibreOffice stuff. Um, I actually didn't realize that's why they're not calling it a ribbon in LibreOffice. It's the notebook UI, and the reason it doesn't look the same is because they don't want to get sued for it. Otherwise, they the developers apparently have said, we have the skill to just copy the ribbon. We're just not allowed to. Um, so that kind of is interesting as well, but... Yeah, OpenOffice is still here. Lots of people have been calling for OpenOffice to close down and give their name to LibreOffice because that would, I, th I mean, you know, all these 1.4 million people still using, 1.6 million people still using OpenOffice would then get an up-to-date Office suite if they did that. That didn't have a bunch of security vulnerabilities and, you know, right. didn't get corrupted files. And at the same time, yeah, LibreOffice would get more, more developer support. It wouldn't be as fragmented and it would get more just attention in general because the more recognizable name um but yeah that's open office is still here just so everyone knows and they're not they're not gonna give up anytime soon apparently but uh watch out for that mac bug once again all right our next story is about gnome 4 now it seems like just a few years ago which really it's been more than a few years it seems like not too long ago though the GNOME 3 was was being released and everybody was getting all up in arms about the new UI. Now GNOME Shell 4 is coming out and they are going to save us from the crazy extensions, Richard. They are, um, they are planning some things. Basically, the reason GNOME 4 is going to be the Wayland release. Um, right now, GNOME 3, they're trying to develop for Wayland, but they're also still trying to keep X working, and they say that's a lot of work. So uh, GNOME 4 is really going to be designed with Wayland in mind, and they've got some different, some different options for how they're going to do it. Um, they're thinking they're going to separate out the UI and the compositor into two separate processes. Um, which will have the added benefit of allowing other desktop environments to use the compositor if they want to. Um, of course, that's at the the downside that the other desktops would have to worry about GNOME making changes to that, because in general, GNOME doesn't worry about anyone except for GNOME when they're making changes <laughs> to their software. But it is sort of nice that some decoupled code could be used elsewhere. Now, they do mention that this new separate process architecture that they're they're trying to do would be an issue for extensions. And they say right off the bat here, if they do go ahead with this plan for GNOME 4, all extensions would have to be rewritten, probably from scratch, as the architecture would change dramatically. Uh, for example, they would no longer be written in ST. They would instead be written against GTK+. They do say this, however, means we would now have the ability to limit what extensions can do in the compositor process, for stability reasons, of course. And reconsider, I like how they put this, we'll need to reconsider whether monkey patching or well-defined extension points is the way forward. 
Now, I just love that kind of like, we need to consider this because they they write that sentence down and they're like pretending that they're actually giving it a consideration. Do we want to let people do whatever they want with extensions or do we want to just make it a cookie cutter thing that they can change some extra settings that we say they can? Uh, but when they phrase it like this, monkey patching versus well-defined extension points, they're clearly, they're basically saying that they're going to make well-defined extension points and that's your only option. So they, they say it would probably be a good idea to be wary about introducing extensions in a garbage collected language in the compositor process, uh, but only allowing the compiled compositor side extensions might be problematic. So they're still not sure how they're going to do extensions at all with GNOME 4. Um, they talk a lot about their, their UI. If you're interested in Wayland, you should definitely read this, um, this wiki page on GNOME because it is interesting how they're changing. Um, once again, as a result of X is the display server, Wayland is just a protocol. So GNOME, as well as all other desktop environments, basically have to write their own display servers now. That's what this is referring to, basically. Um, but yeah, is that you, what the compositing system would be then? Right. Um, would be their display server then? Yeah. Whereas right now, um, compositing is more just for effects. This would be a compositing mm -hmm. process that handles all display stuff. Um, but yeah, if you are on GNOME and you use extensions at all, I would get very worried right now. I kind of liken it to the, the Firefox extension change that recently happened. A lot of people got up in arms about the Firefox extension change, uh, which we're actually not covering Firefox 57 in this video because I made a different video about it already, but um, they switched from regular extensions to web extensions, which don't have nearly as many things they can do. Um, now, most popular extensions have been rewritten in the web extension framework, but a lot of people got angry about that. This is sort of the same thing. They're saying, oh, it's more secure, it's more stable, but you can't have the functionality you want. Um, of course, GNOME will probably still be the most popular desktop environment, even after they release GNOME 4 somehow, but... <laughs> that's coming down the pike. Do you have anything else to say about that? Well, I mean, I'm kind of interested in how they do the um, extension points because if they make yeah. a large enough API and yeah. they like, I, as long as the API is fairly extensive, it can really control a lot. But if you just like make it have, like as you were mentioning, just like a few settings, right. then that's really kind of making them pointless. It's Am like, well, we gave you extensions, but they're not actually having any effect. Yeah. My thing about about having well-defined APIs is um, even if you say, all right, we're going to make an API that's got all the functionality that you want right now, which you know they're not going to do. There's going to be somebody who wants functionality and they say, oh, that's we're not going to put that in the API. It's beyond our scope. Um, even if they were to, in a perfect world, put all of the features anyone requested at a given point in the API, the, if, they're, if they explicitly disallow modifying code at all and say you, had, you need to use the API endpoints, then that takes away the possibility to innovate in the future for ideas that people haven't even thought of yet. Now, this is me talking as yeah. a non-developer, um, so I could just be talking you know, out of thin air here. But, but then people could also just you know fork GNOME or put a pull request if they Can they fork GNOME? Actually. I mean... If they fork GNOME, they're going to be forking an entire desktop environment and all the applications that go along yeah. with it. I guess um, you can't really do that, actually, easily. Yeah, like, it, you can say, in theory, they can do that, but, you know, practically, they're making it harder and harder, too. So that's the reason why I um, get concerned about that kind of thing. It's kind of like if, they, if GNOME were to say, all right, we're just getting rid of extensions entirely, but we're going to add everything that you could possibly want as a setting in our setting center because their setting center has always been so complete. 
um, would you really trust them to put all the settings you could possibly want now or in the future in their settings sensor? Or would you want extensions to be a thing, period? It's sort of the same thing. And some rare projects do manage to include all the features that people want, such as KDE or like with... Uh, with um, yeah, I mean, I've never even really had a want to modify KDE. Like, I right, because you don't need to, because they it include... Just works. Yeah. KDE includes every configuration option under the sun. Another example is the content management software Composer. Um, unlike WordPress and Drupal that you have extensions to or plugins to to modify, there are no Composer plugins because Composer includes every feature under the sun. And if you ask them to implement one that's not there, they're happy to do it. Uh, but GNOME's not that kind of project. GNOME is a project that has a a clear goal of how you should use your computer, uh, which works well for a lot of people, but yeah, be aware that if you are one of those people who likes to tweak GNOME, that that will be changing. Yeah, Janots is, uh, says he's sad for XFCE now uh, because they're just now starting to move to GTK3, whereas GNOME is just now starting to move to GTK4. Um, kind of leaving him behind a little bit. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and I think Mate took Mate took a little while to switch to GTK3 after GNOME switched to GTK3, but XFCE definitely has way less manpower than even Mate does. Um, yeah, I, I do think XFCE is relatively healthy. I'm gonna go to their website right now because I have been seeing some updates from them. I have been checking in every now and then because I think it's good we've got those, those third options. Uh, yeah, the, I mean, the last release, uh, the last release of XFCE on their website was from February 2015, actually. So that's... Oh, wow. That's fairly dated. Yeah. But, I mean, the one before that's 2012, so it's not like, like, they're, they're at their correct release cadence. Um, mm -hmm. they haven't missed a release or anything. It's not dead. They just take a while between changes because they don't change a whole lot because they're happy with how their computer works. How, how's that for, like, a... A philosophy the the computer works fine just keep it the way it is um we're always talking about all these updates and new toolkits new display servers xfce folks are like you know what it's doing what i wanted to right now so that's that's good for them their goal is to make the lightweight one right Isn't um, they're like to be very lightweight yeah i mean they're yeah they're more lightweight than mate um LXDE or LXQT is another lightweight one. LXDE used to be GTK. I bet they're happy they switched to QT now, because um, <laughs> they don't have to worry about this anymore. I think XFCE and the, like, ever is competition to move forward with it. Huh? And like the ever competition to move forward with it. Yeah. In GTK. XFCE puts behind. a lot of focus on configurability as well. Like LXQT is basically like their thing is just being lightweight. XFCE is like a mix of that with KDE. Like they want everything to be pretty configurable. All right, um, our next story is another one about Office. Probably should have put this one next to the OpenOffice one, but LibreOffice. We talked a couple weeks ago about LibreOffice doing their community. Were you on this episode where we talked about the LibreOffice mascot um, competition there? Oh, I think so. They basically, they said, hey, community, we want a mascot that's not our logo and does not include anything about the Document Foundation whatsoever, um, but somehow in a caricature represents an office suite and they were going to pick the top 80 ask for people to vote on them then they were going to take the top 12 and decide themselves which of the top 12 it was going to be 
that's what was happening with LibreOffice last time we talked about them. That was previously on. Now, um, LibreOffice mascot survey still not over yet. They have they have not picked out that mascot. That was like a, at least a month ago when we talked about that, right? Yeah. It's really taking it's them. It's been a month since we've done like an episode. Yeah, it's taking them much too long to pick out a mascot. Um, <laughs> And there, there's some reasons for that. First of all, you know, they should have narrowed it down more than they did before the survey because a lot of people didn't want to take a survey with 80 different mascots. Two, we talked about how they eliminated a lot of really good mascots from the survey that should have been in the survey and then left in low-quality ones that shouldn't have even been there. But I thought after the survey ended, they were just going to take the top 12 and decide it themselves. And I I said how that was kind of hypocritical because they wanted it to specifically not be related to the Document Foundation. Then they had the Document Foundation make the choice. But it turns out there was actually a phase in between those two um, called the iteration phase. Do you have any idea what that might mean? No. I think the iteration phase was like they took the top 12 and then they wanted people to make iterations on those top 12. To find, oh, okay. like, the best possible, like, all right, here's here's the good, here's the short list. Now let's tweak these to make them better. Um, so they set up their own image board, and I've been informed by Reddit it was a Baru-style image board. Um, do you know what that looks like? No. It's like every image has its own page. I think images can link to each other as, like, parents of each other if you've got um, a certain like variations on an image and then each image page has a comment section it's um it's specifically not like a, a chan style image board which has a bunch of images on the same page a baru style image board has one image i thought it was interesting instead of using a different image board um the document foundation actually set up their own it was at like imageboard.documentfoundation.org they actually took that image board down and it just redirects to this article now um but apparently they encountered, quote, uh, all right, unfortunately we ended up being overloaded with spam, trolls, flame wars, and denial of service attacks uh, during that iteration phase. So people on Reddit were joking, thought. like, what, did they post these things to 4chan and ask for iterations? And then somebody said, no, they actually made their own image board and the trolls came to them. Um, I don't know what, how they managed that, um, I don't know what they kind use of like an out of the box software I don't know and then what kind not of not have any protection against spam. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what kind of sign up like mechanisms they had in place. Did they have captchas? Did they have any sort of email verification? Um, but all right, they say there are certainly some things we could have done and communicated better, but the attack sadly meant we had to close this iteration phase early. Um, they did not mention if they actually got any iterations or not, though. <laughs> So they say, anyway, we now move on to the final phase in which the Document Foundation members and the board of directors choose the final mascot. So, yeah. Uh, Yanats is asking in the chat, why is this newsworthy? <laughs> Yanats is newsworthy because there wasn't a whole lot of news we had in mind for this week, honestly. But It's also newsworthy that apparently LibreOffice can't, the, the people who make it can't seem to figure out how to run a forum. <laughs> yeah, they can't figure out how to run a forum or even just run a general community. Like, the Reddit thread about this one, there were actually a lot of people that gave a lot of good points about, oh, you know, if they would have done this better, this whole thing would have worked more smoothly. Um, really, this entire mascot project was supposed to be something to increase community involvement, but it, uh, it ended up just dragging out and now, like, nobody... 
either you don't care about it or it's just a laughing fest, laughing at LibreOffice yeah. for this thing. Um, so it's basically turning into Microsoft Clippy, just their own version of it. Whatever this mascot is, you better believe people aren't going to like it very much after this whole debacle. But um, Yeah, particularly since it doesn't seem like ever, people have actually had a whole lot of input. Before we move on to our next story, um, there was this image that one of the submissions for the LibreOffice contest was by the same person who drew the Krita logo. Have you seen uh, the Krita logo? No. All right. Uh, Krita is a painting application that is written in Qt. I think it's part of the KDE project, but it's like loosely connected. It's not one of their core things. Um, but yeah, the same artist who did that submitted a um, submission into LibreOffice, and then they got disqualified from the even the initial survey. So they they drew this nice little image here of the logo from Krita and the KDE logo, like consoling the sad LibreOffice rejected mascot. Um, and they tweeted that out. I, I, I just thought that was nice. I didn't catch it at, at like when it was hot, so I didn't retweet it. Um, but yeah, that, like you're making people sad with your community survey event here, LibreOffice. So, all right, here's, <laughs> let's talk about something more serious. Um, NVIDIA sucks and I'm sick of it is the title of this blog post. <laughs> Um, so, uh, a couple weeks ago, the Linux community kind of blew up about NVIDIA and NVIDIA support of Wayland. So, as we've talked about in the past, most graphics card manufacturers, and when I say most, I mean AMD and Intel, are supporting, um, I don't even know all the proper terminology for this, but they're supporting what the Linux Wayland developers want to use for Wayland and what all of like GNOME and KDE and everybody has decided this standard is the best and AMD and Intel with their open source drivers are supporting that standard. NVIDIA has been trying to push this other thing called EGL streams which is right here in the second line of this blog um, basically saying well this is how we do it on Windows and Mac and we don't want to put in the, the uh, development time to create a whole new driver for Linux. So Linux is going to have to rewrite Wayland to support EGL streams. Um, or you're going to have to write your implementations to support EGL streams, in addition to that other one for all the other cards. Um, or else the NVIDIA says they're not going to write the driver for Wayland. So this developer here, who is a developer of a compositor called Sway, is basically saying here that they are not going to run on the NVIDIA proprietary driver. They say today Sway is able to run on the NVIDIA proprietary driver, this is not and never has been a supported feature. It was just just kind of, a, it happened to work. Um, and he, the developer here, the lead developer of Sway says, NVIDIA support was added to Sway without my approval. Um, it comes from a library we depend on, but um, that library is being replaced by better libraries. So Sway, which is the compositor for, what is the window manager that uses this? Let's see, it's i3. Um, have you heard of the i3 window manager? Yes. It's a, a simplistic and minimalistic yeah. window manager. Not super popular, but um, Sway was a compositor. Actually, a bunch of the people, a bunch of the CS majors like who are the upper level classmen use it a lot. Oh, really? Yeah, at my um, college. That's cool. Um, I haven't tried it yet, though. All um, right. Well, maybe people do use i3 after all, um, which makes this even more relevant, that do those people have NVIDIA graphics cards? 
Um, I'm pretty sure. Then they're not going to be using it for much longer because after they switch to uh, after yeah. they switch to Wayland, then Nvidia just won't be supported. Um, so GBM is the the standard that Linux wants to use, and then EGL streams once again is the standard Nvidia is trying to push. Um, so yeah, this this person writing the blog post gets a little explicit in their language, but basically they say it is not my problem to support Nvidia. It's Nvidia's problem to support me. Even Broadcom, uh, who is notorious for making like wireless cards and stuff that don't work well on Linux, supports the appropriate kernel APIs to work in Linux now. Um, and proprietary driver users, basically he's also now yelling at the users buying NVIDIA graphics cards and uh, saying, screw you too, users, um, which made some people Great. angry, you can imagine. Um, so that's me included in that too. Unless... Right. <laughs> and that's where it's kind of getting into the, how much is it our fault that we bought NVIDIA versus how much is it NVIDIA's fault that they're not, I, you know, support this. <laughs> like it's debatable. How much is it NVIDIA's fault for not supporting open source? How much is it the Sway's fault for not supporting NVIDIA? But like, let's talk about that. Do you think that it's on us to get rid of our NVIDIA cards and get AMD cards now that all of this is happening and we know that NVIDIA is not playing nice? Mm, no. <laughs> Here's my thing. Because I still, like, I still feel like at a certain point I like NVIDIA on at least the graphics quality because I feel like they've still done very well in games. And so yeah. I want that in terms of, like, when I'm on Windows and when I'm playing games, I want to be able to use a graphics card that's good enough for it. Right. Um, and I don't know how much you've been looking into AMD GPUs. I, I understand they've been getting a lot better recently. Um, but there is a reason why NVIDIA had basically... Well, not a monopoly, but they had the upper hand for so long with GPUs because yeah, they did perform they had such better a large market share. for a long time. They performed better, um, and on Linux, AMD did open source their driver and make it a whole lot better. And now AMD works better on Linux, but for a decade, AMD sucked on Linux, and Intel was the only real option. Um, now, to all those people out there saying, "Oh, if you use Nvidia, you should just sell your Nvidia graphics card and buy an AMD card." <laughs> Um, Richard, would your system support that? Like, if you were to do that? Just out of curiosity. I haven't looked enough into the research, but... Like, it, is I'm it... Sure. It's, you've got a PCI slot in your motherboard that you've yeah. got. All right. Here's my issue with that is I, I've got a laptop. It's oh, like, yeah. I, I can't... I can't get rid of my integrated NVIDIA... Like, it's not integrated. It is discrete. Um, it's on an MXM mobile PCI card, but you can't just swap those out. Like, it, the the motherboard is made to work with NVIDIA cards. Um, so, yeah, I I can't do that even if I wanted to other than getting a new laptop, which AMD doesn't even make their newest line of graphics for laptops yet. So, yeah, this is basically, they're now saying that you need to be using a desktop if you want to be using Wayland, according to this developer here, other than using Intel. Um, integrated graphics, which is great for people who are doing programming like you, and a lot of the Linux community does programming. Um, a lot of the Linux community says, oh, get a ThinkPad, um, get something with Intel graphics, or get something with AMD graphics. It works fine for web browsing and editing my text documents, but when I'm video editing, I can't be using integrated graphics. Um, yeah. and gamers I mean, it works aren't fine gonna... for programming 
as right. long as you're not programming a game that happens to like use 3D rendering either. Yeah, game or programmers to be using Blender or right. <laughs> like anything that requires a high graphics requirement. And I'm not even a game developer, but I am using Blender for animation. And let me tell yeah. you that I um, recently switched from CPU to GPU rendering, and it is a whole lot faster now that I figured out how to use it properly. And yeah, I couldn't really render it at a fraction of the speed that I'm rendering at now if I was using an integrated graphics card. I don't even know if Intel integrated graphics has GPU rendering um, in Blender. Probably not, because there would be no point. Um, but yeah, it is interesting what they're they're kind of saying. Of course, people on Reddit got pretty worked up about this one as well. Um, the reason I'm including so many Reddit posts this week is because I've been reading the Linux subreddit for the month that we've been gone, and that's where I got all of our news this week. But yeah, um, GNOME's still, so we, we've got kind of a widespread. GNOME is still trying to support NVIDIA on Wayland, but NVIDIA has come out and said we have no plans to support X Wayland, which is required if you want to run X applications under Wayland, which means that you can literally use no X applications, which is not going to be practical for like a long time. So yeah, but GNOME's still trying to do it, but they say we don't really know how to. Now, um, previously on this show, a while back, we covered KDE, uh, we covered Martin Grassland talking about how how uh, KDE's not going to be supporting NVIDIA on Wayland. Were you on the show when we talked about that? Um, I'm pretty sure, yeah. Okay. Um, I wasn't sure if that was way back when Mark was still here, because it was like a while back. It was one of the, the earlier weeks. But we do have an update on that. And I got confused, because it says 2017 so edition. I don't, yeah, I wouldn't have been... I don't think I, I would have been on the show then, yeah. Right. I mean, ha I don't think we started this show before 2017, though. So I don't know why this is called 2017 edition. But, um, but yeah, this blog post basically... Yeah, KDE's stance on this NVIDIA Wayland thing before was, we're not going to support... Wayland on NVIDIA. If you use NVIDIA, you're going to be stuck with X, period. And I was kind of concerned about that because I was like, well, I might have to switch to GNOME eventually, um, which I didn't want to do. Now, Martin has come out and made another blog post and says, in light of, um, of recent events, we are willing to support NVIDIA Wayland if NVIDIA writes the code themselves to do it. Um, he says, all right, NVIDIA... You want us to use EGL streams? All right, you come in here and you write KDE code to support EGL streams. And I will put that before he said, even if they submitted the patch, he would not implement it in, um, in KDE. Now KDE is saying, if you submit that code, we will accept it into KWIN, but you still have to write it. We're not going to write it because it's a whole lot of work. It's like an entirely separate, it's like they're writing two KWINs basically. Of course, what are the if Nvidia is not willing to open source their driver and let other people do the work for them, then what are the odds Nvidia is going to be willing to write KWIN? Um, probably. Uh, I feel pretty, like they're definitely not going to be. Probably pretty low. Because then they'd also have to write it for every major like desktop environment too. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, so yeah, people are still saying that Nvidia users need to somehow convince Nvidia to to fix this. Um, that's our fault. <laughs> yeah, and then, but some people are also getting mad at KDE and saying, oh, well, what if, you know, you should just write it yourself. Don't expect NVIDIA to do it for you, which I don't follow, but that's another part of the community saying that. Um, now, you might be wondering about the current open source NVIDIA driver. There actually is one. It's called NoView. Some people joke that that is pronounced NoVideo because that driver <laughs> sucks. 
really bad. And the last time I used that driver, I was getting about 10 FPS with nothing open except just a blank desktop. I was moving my mouse around and getting 10 FPS. Wow. Um, and I've got a GTX 1080 in my laptop. I was getting 10 FPS moving my mouse cursor around the screen. That's how bad NoView is. So now the thing about NoView is that it has zero support from N NVIDIA. It is entirely reverse engineered. Basically the NoView developers, the fact that I was able to boot a desktop at all, I was impressed because the NoView developers basically write random changes, send random signals to the graphics card and see what happens. And if it works, then they put that in the driver. Um, that is how <laughs> NoView is developed. Um, now, earlier this year, the one of the only people within NVIDIA who actually helped with the NoView driver left NVIDIA. And NVIDIA said when that person left, oh, we'll still, we'll, we'll designate someone else to do that. And then they didn't. So... So that was in, like their inside person and they're gone now. Right. Um, the contact's name was Alexander Corvat and um, yeah, he is no longer at NVIDIA. So the NoView developers really are having a tough time trying to trying to make that work. Um, now NVIDIA does have an open source driver that they make as well. It's called NVGPU, but it's only for computational cards. Um, it's not for actual graphics cards that you can get a display out of. Um, so NVIDIA claims, oh, we've got, we don't need to support NoView, we've got our own open source driver, but it's, it's not the same thing. It's comparing <laughs> apples and oranges. So yeah. One last thing about it is Solus, the pragmatists, uh, pragmatists, they're, 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 Solus is the ones who have basically a single developer running their entire distro, and you can't download any packages except for the ones that that developer says it's okay to download. Um, but they say that's okay. They say it works. Uh, our system works great. Um, it is rolling release, so that's nice. But the Solus, Solus is saying that the they are... Approved packages. <laughs> Solus is now saying they are going to take on NVIDIA on Wayland. And like this, isn't, this is not like Gnome saying, we're trying to do it, but there's problems. Solus is saying, all right, we're making it a goal for the next version of Solus. There's going to be NVIDIA on Wayland with a proprietary driver, get ready for it. Um, so I'm pretty excited to see how far they get with that. Right now, Solus's desktop environment called Budgie is a GTK environment, but they said uh, at the beginning of this year that they were going to make the next version in QT. So if Solus makes, if Solus does make Budgie into a QT desktop and they're able to get EGL streams working in Budgie on QT, then KDE might be able to use that code too. Uh, which would be nice, but then on the other hand, I I don't know how well any of it's going to work at all. I it's a really big undertaking for like literally one or two Solus developers to undertake. But Solus has done some really um, impressive stuff in the past. They're really into polish, and generally when they say they're going to do something, they actually do it and they try and do it well. Locked down as they may be, they do make a really nice distro. So that's pretty interesting. It is weird that we have like the smallest development team then actually taking this on. Making the biggest the commitment like, to take We're it not on. going to. <laughs> yeah. That's where we're at with that though. So if you do not, if you're looking to buy a computer right now, I would buy an AMD computer. Like, um, yeah, well, I'd go all AMD basically because Intel's got the management engine with Minix and NVIDIA doesn't support Wayland. <laughs> so really you should get an AMD processor and an AMD graphics card. Um, if you're going to get a computer today, that's what I would do. Um, I, hopefully System76 starts selling AMD systems by before the next time I need to buy a computer because I'm not, 
uh, wanting to support either Intel or NVIDIA right now. Um, but yeah, now our chat room user Yaunats does say that they mentioned uh, Intel did announce, did you hear Richard, Intel is going to be making dedicated GPUs now. Wow, that's kind of like a market shift for them too. It so really it's is. Like breaking into a whole new and thing, it, yeah. It came like a week after Intel announced they were partnering with AMD to make a single chip that's got an Intel processor and an AMD graphics chip. So you've got you've got that going on, which like remember AMD used to just be a processor company who competed with mm-hmm. Intel. Then they bought ATI. Then they started making graphics. So you've got AMD and Intel partnering one week. The very next week, Intel says, "All right, we're going to make our own discrete GPUs." And now we're competing with not only the people we just partnered with AMD, the people we partnered with last week that nobody ever thought we'd partner with. We're going to be competing with them on two markets now. And we're also competing with NVIDIA, um, who has always complimented Intel, but Intel and NVIDIA have never really cooperated specifically. They've just always gone well together as the not AMD, you know, option out there. Yeah. So it's a lot of interesting that is stuff. kind of a weird, like, <laughs> to like the week after, though, after they announced they were partnering now, they're kind of like competing with them. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was really interesting. Um so yeah, we'll see where that goes, and if we are able to buy Intel, like, you know, Intel desktop graphics cards in a couple of years, that would be really cool, I think, if we had three people competing. <laughs> as long um, as they don't put another Minix in that as well. <laughs> yeah. Now, the, the thing is, like, Intel's Intel's graphics drivers have always been open source. They've been open source longer than AMD's, um, and Intel actually contributes to the open source driver in the Linux kernel for their graphics. So... Yeah, it's really interesting, and it's also interesting that we've got CPU companies. Like, is NVIDIA going to announce they're making processors next? Like, because we, we've got two <laughs> out of... It's also announcing they're making everything. Right, we've got two companies now that are making both processors and graphics cards. Um, and there's some reasons for that, because a graphics card is basically a bunch of processors made for a certain specific task. Um, just like other high-end computational cards, but like Bitcoin mining cards and whatnot. But yeah, which now are separate, right? Because at one time people used GPUs, and that's kind of dead, right? Right. But you can get like dedicated cards or just dedicated machines, um, just for mining Bitcoin. So yeah, Um, that was our last story for this week, Richard. (laughs) Um, Yeah, we weren't super organized this week. Didn't have a whole lot going on. Did you have any other Linux stories you've heard about since our last episode? You wanted to mention? Um, no. All right. Well, yeah, I'm still using Linux. Um, have you upgraded? Have you tried Firefox 57 yet? Um, yes, I have it both on Windows and on Linux. It just oh. updated on my desktop. How do you like I'm it? I'm actually using Firefox 57 right now. Oh, are you? It's like it's definitely a big improvement. Yeah. Though I feel like I was spoiled by it somewhat because I was using Nightly on ah. Windows for so long. Yeah. And so, like, I've been getting that speed boost for the last couple months. So then, when I got it on here, it didn't seem like this huge yeah. surprise to me. But that's one of the reasons I avoid Nightly. Um, but yeah, I, I was most inter- um, excited about the new interface because I know most of the performance improvements were in 56. Uh, 57 brought the new UI, and you can see this was actually the first week of this show that I have used Firefox on screen and not Chromium. Because um, before, I've never trusted Firefox to really, like, I've got, I've got like 1,500 tabs open over eight <laughs> windows in Firefox right now, and I've always... Um, closed Firefox completely and opened up Chromium so that I just had what I was showing for the show. But I was actually confident enough. 57 actually brought some new um, CSS engine improvements for Firefox. 
and uh, yeah, it, I'm I've never been this confident in Firefox to do my my day to day browsing. It has not been. Um, I haven't even had any crashes since I've updated to 57, which I've always had like an occasional crash um, once a, every day or two. So yeah, um, I've had some issues on YouTube. Issues on YouTube. When I, went I to heard YouTube's people. Front page, there was a script that kept running, and it happened both on Windows and on Linux with Firefox 57. So. All right. Was it the YouTube front page? Because I never go to the. Yeah. All right. I had never go people... directly to that. Yeah, I never go to because I it's got all the recommendations and stuff I don't need. Um, but yeah, I I have on the homepage right now not having any problems. Oh hey, I just have a comment notification. Check this out. We'll put this on screen. Um, Mark, it's a zero uh, commented on my Firefox video just updated and it does not work on YouTube. Um, so yeah, people have been saying that they can't get audio video on YouTube. Now you're saying there's a script thing. I haven't had any problems. Um, but yeah, I don't know what you're on a new bunch yeah, of as soon as I went to the front right? page, it said a script is slowing you down and it took a good like five ish seconds for everything to load, like the thumbnails. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I, I've been okay with YouTube. Uh, Firefox has gotten a lot better at displaying Google apps, like online, like Google Calendar and YouTube. Google's not making it any easier for Firefox to display with all, yeah. their, all of their animation-heavy material design crap, I'll tell you that. Um, but yeah. And then they have the um, thing always promoting getting Google Chrome every right. time you go to it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's about all for this week. We'll wrap it up. Sounds like Yanats has um, some unrelated questions, so we'll chat with him. If you want to chat with us next week live, we are doing rolling release again. Um, this week we started at 7.30 p.m. CST. Um, you think we'll be good for like around the same time next week, Richard? Yes. Cool. All right. Uh, so live.nots.co is the website for that. Chat in our chat room. Um, Yanats here is in our chat room at the website, which is always awesome. And, yeah, you can listen to this podcast in audio form as well on iTunes or Google Play. Richard, if people want more of you throughout the week, where should they go? Um, Glorf22 on Twitter. I'm, uh, that's mainly where I'm, like, at during the week. All right. And I am at JacobGKEU on Twitter. I've actually been tweeting a little bit more recently. Of course, you can always find me at NerdOnTheStreet.com as well. And that's also where you can find more videos. And you can join our Nerd Club if you want to help us make more videos. Uh, but for now, that's everything we got. We'll see you guys next week with some hopefully more structured news. Um, yeah, I'm Jacob Kaufman. And I'm Richard Demmer. All right, see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.